I'm excited to bring the word this morning. The title of my sermon is God's Sovereignty and Hope for the Unborn. We will be in Isaiah chapter 44, zeroing in on verses 24 through 25, but I will read through verse 28 because the context is too good. So I'll read the text, pray, and then we'll get after it. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. It's my beard. One second. Does that help? Let's pray that helps. <clears throat> I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit as I seek to preach your word with clarity, with joy, with fervor, and with authority. God, I do ask that the congregation would receive your word as your word. You care about justice. You are the God of justice. And so, Lord, let me not be a distraction, but let me be one who can sound the trumpet for the unborn this morning as we seek to worship our Savior, as we grow together in our attitudes towards justice. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. In the article, The Supreme Court Case That Could Overturn Roe versus Wade, It is explained that later this year, a decision will be made regarding the Supreme Court case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, and that this case could potentially overturn Roe versus Wade. A combination of science revealing more and more of what the Bible has always been saying, that life begins at conception, and a realization that America's position on abortion is extreme when compared to the rest of the world. Light is being shed on the evil of abortion, and the tragic loss of over 60 million lives. I do recommend this article to you all. To, <clears throat> to you all, It's informative, and at the end, it lists 10 specific ways to be praying in the coming months. We must pay attention to these conversations and fight for justice for the unborn. As mentioned earlier, this Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It is a day where we seek to blow the trumpet for the unborn. A day where we zero in as a church on the evil of abortion because we are called to do justice in Scripture. To ensure that image bearers, particularly the weak and the vulnerable, are treated with dignity and treated with honor. 
And in this case, it simply means that they have a chance to live, a right to life. Abortion violates God's law. It assumes the role of determiner of life and death. It leaves women living in guilt and shame. It ends the life of precious children, and the church cannot be complacent or silent on this issue. The world claims to have their wisdom. The world has their morality, their code of ethics. But as Christians, we must hold fast to the word of God. We must understand the arguments and the apologetic of the world so that we can stand firm on truth, be compassionate, and engage this secular creed in an informed manner. Because the argument has shifted. It's no longer when does life begin, but now it is a battle over rights over my body and the perceived autonomy that the world believes they have. The truth is this. God alone owns everything. As creator of all, he is Lord over all. He is Lord over all morality. He is Lord over all wisdom. He is Lord over all justice. He is Lord over our bodies, and he is Lord over our rights. And in this section of Isaiah's prophecy, there is a lot going down. Israel is in exile. Hope seems to be completely gone. The Lord's people are feeling the lowest of lows. They are feeling helpless. They are feeling hopeless. They feel that their God has abandoned them. They're aware of their sin. They're fearful of Babylonian captivity. Prophets are proclaiming that Babylon's rule will continue forever and that the Lord's people are finished. These false prophets are enticing fear into the Lord's people. Each day, worse news comes. These pagan nations will have the final say. That's what's being communicated. But this passage begins with the wonderful phrase, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, redeeming God. And after mocking these false prophets and showing the foolishness of idolatry, that's in verses 9 through 18, these words come thundering to shatter the folly of worldly wisdom and remind Israel and these false prophets who they are dealing with. And God says he is going to protect and redeem his people. And the Lord chooses to do, through, do so through Cyrus. Cyrus, who was a pagan king and an idolater himself. The Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, who made all things and who alone stretched out the heavens. He's the one who is speaking. And now the diviners and the wise men need to take a seat. Here's the problem. Many times we can want the final say as well. Oftentimes we can find ourselves doubting that the Lord is going to execute justice and to redeem. Our pessimism can overshadow the promise of gospel hope. We don't believe functionally that God is as powerful as he says. We can find ourselves trusting in princes and trusting in man-made power and can be pulled in and seduced by the wisdom of the world. And so my prayer is that we would truly believe that God is sovereign and that God is good. That as creator over all, he has the final say. That our trust in his sovereignty and rule would embolden us to courageously advocate for justice for the unborn. That we would never forget the myriad of lives lost of helpless image bearers. And that we would be emboldened to combat the world's arguments and also persuade them to the truth. 
The wisdom of the world will be proved to be foolish because the Lord decrees all, is over all, and redeems what is broken. Church, if we don't know this, here's what will happen. We will quiet our voices on the issue of abortion and fail to fulfill the commands in Scripture to be stewards of God's justice. Micah 6.8 does not ask, what does the Lord suggest of you? Nor does it say, what does the Lord hope you will do if you find some spare time and don't step on any toes? It says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And the primary targets of justice are described earlier in Isaiah and all throughout Scripture. It is those who are the oppressed. It is the weak. It is the vulnerable. It is the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow. And those children in the womb are being oppressed. They are the weak and they are the vulnerable. Church, we cannot be silent on this issue. Because God is our redeeming, sovereign, and good creator, here's what we do. We happily entrust that his good purposes will be fulfilled and that justice will reign. This text ought to help us entrust justice to God. He is going to have his purposes fulfilled. He is going to end all evil. This text reveals much to us about who God is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this under two headings and then one heading for application regarding the sanctity of human life. So what do we learn about the Lord? First is this. The Lord is, heading number one, creator of all things. This is verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. This jumps in the face and the fears of the original audience. They're only thinking of the evil of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're currently living in fear and despair, forgetting who is on their side. The Lord is on their side. Who is the Lord? He is the one who formed you in the womb. Apart from God's hand, none of us exist. You are a created being. I am a created being. God is our creator, and because of that, he is owner of us. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God is our creator, and he owns us. And because of the character of who our God is, that is a very good thing. John Oswald says it like this. He says that God is Israel's maker, suggests that he would not like to see her destroyed. But desire is hardly enough to guarantee deliverance. But if he is also the sole maker of the whole world, however, then he can indeed be Israel's redeemer. He is the Lord who formed us in the womb. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He says, he stretched out the heavens alone. He spread out the earth alone. Where were we? We were not there. God alone is the agent of creation. Alec Mottier is helpful. He says it like this, only one God lies behind all creational reality. There is nothing of which he is not the maker and no other agency alongside him. He is the creator. We are creature. This means he owns all things. Creator equals ownership. It's God's. All things. 
All things belong to God. All morality, all justice, all plans, all sovereignty, all rule. God himself decrees it all. And because of that, there is hope all over this text. The one who is speaking is the one who has the final word. He's not hoping that he might frustrate the plans of the world's foolish wise men. He will do that. There is hope that the Lord who made everything is the one who is our Redeemer and Lord. He is king, no one else. No agenda is going to outgovern our sovereign Lord who created the universe by the power of his words. Their knowledge is foolishness. The NASB <laughs> translated as ridiculous and nonsense, says the NIV. That is what the wise men's plans are. Foolishness, ridiculous, and nonsense. So the hope for us is this. Our God will surely bring justice. Our God will make things right. Our God is on our side regarding this. So church, as we fight for justice for the unborn and battle false ideologies that would frame abortion as an avenue for justice, the smile of God is with us. Our God cares for the weak and the needy, and what the Lord says will come to fruition. Here's what life looks like if we don't know this, if we don't know that God is our sovereign Lord who is over all things, and all things belong to him. We'll foolishly believe the widespread lie that we are autonomous beings and ultimately decide what happens in life that we are in control, and the only life to consider in decision-makings are our own. That when I make decisions and live my life and go by a moral code, this moral code is whatever feels right and whatever feels necessary. God exits the question on ethics. God exits the equation, rather, on ethics. We can sympathize too much with the woes of the world in the wrong way and slip into folly. We can weaken and water down our convictions so that our faith is more palpable or acceptable to the ever-changing moral compass of the world. We cannot do that, church. The world's morality believes that autonomy is king. It is my body, therefore it is my choice. The right to abortion is now being framed as an indicator of progress for women's rights. The cry is that women's rights are human rights, and any laws or ideologies preventing a free-for-all on abortion are seen and labeled as misogynistic, patriarchal, and oppressive towards women. Church, this is not the truth. Check. Check. All right. <laughs> this is not the truth. All right, so here's what we have to understand, church. There is opportunity for God's justice for the baby and for God's justice for the mother. For the mothers, the fear of not being able to provide, pressure from family members or the father's guilt and shame that come, all of the pressures and fears the woman is facing are opportunities for the church to step in and provide courage, to provide hope and resources for women who are seeking abortions. We must engage these issues biblically literate. The my body, my choice mantra falls apart quickly because our bodies are not our own. Our passage today shows that worldly wisdom is foolish and that the plans of man are often foolish plans. God requires us to make him the one who dictates the conversation, who spurs us to action, and in whom all of our trust is. We do realize that God is really good at what he does, right? Our God is a kind God. When we look at the attributes of God, perfect in love, 
perfect in justice. He is the God who does no wrong. He is perfectly good. And then we entrust our lives and all sovereignty and rule and reign to him, to this God. That spurs us on, church. He is a good God. And he can do good work through any means that he desires. God did a great thing through the wicked king Cyrus. We must trust that God is sovereign over our government and that worldly authority does not have the final say. Alec Matier says it like this, we can never overemphasize or overexalt the sovereignty of God. <laughs> Isaiah depicts him as in full operational charge of his world and of its every circumstance. This is our security. It is the pillow on which we lay our heads. For as the Bible reveals the creator, he not only originates everything, but also sustains and controls everything and directs everything to his appointed goal, a God who is God indeed. And this leads us to heading number two, the Lord who, this is heading number two, refutes worldly wisdom. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. These soothsayers are about to get a giant dose of reality. They have confidence that their empire is indestructible. Israel is weak and stands no chance against us. Pagans will rule forever. But again, God has something to say. Their predictions hold no weight to the God of wisdom, to the God who is sovereign over all. Matir, once again, is helpful. He says it like this. Babylonian and Assyrian kings are boasting about their power and their strength, giving messages of hope without a single thought of the doom that is about to come upon them. And God raises Cyrus, the pagan king, to rescue God's people and end the reign of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God has the corner on justice. God has the corner on wisdom. And this is good because God is good. He proves their knowledge to be foolishness. They do not get the final say. God has spoken to us, and church, we must remember what he has spoken. We must remember Christ's promises to us. One day, justice will be done, and there will be no more death. And that is not a wish that is absolute certainty. And because of that, there should be a hopefulness that governs our efforts regarding justice because God is going to get his justice done in his way. He promises that justice will reign in the land. Christ came to establish justice in the nations, and we can trust in his word. God wants us to respond by trusting him as creator and submitting to his sovereignty and carrying forth his justice over and against the world's wise men to trust that he will accomplish his good purpose, to not fret, but to continue to press forward in faith. And so to the person here who may feel like they're pleading next to the widow from the scripture that was read earlier in the service and not getting an answer, perhaps you carry justice for the unborn on your heart day in and day out, and you're losing steam in fighting for this area of justice, and you're weary, and you feel like nothing will change, I want you to take hope in the fact that our Lord is ultimately on the throne. 
Take hope in the one who is on the throne. Your begging and pleading is not before a cruel or harsh judge. It is before a perfectly wise and loving father. You are pleading to the rock whose work is perfect because all his ways are justice. Deuteronomy 32.4. He will surely do it. God loves these babies more than we could imagine. And God hears your cries and he sees your tears. And he will one day make all things right. And that's not something that is probable. It is a promise. Church, this text matters today because there are times when we can forget who truly sits on the throne. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves guilty of idolatry and trusting in princes and horses and kings and politics when we are more aware of fears of the world rather than the joy of King Jesus being on the throne. This text can help us. We need this text to shake us out of our here and now only mentality that we can fall into and to remind us of the reality that we are kingdom citizens and our Lord reigns over all. Our God has already won the victory. Sin and death are defeated and death no longer has a lasting sting. This scripture will settle us. It will remind us that worldly wisdom, no matter how dolled up and plausible and inevitable it seems, is foolishness. Our God frustrates the plans of the wise. God's morality and truth do not bend or waver according to the world's standards. Our God himself is the standard and we can rely on him no matter the cost and we can never fear. God's got us. God's justice will reign and rule forever. I came across this quote last week from uh, Thomas Brooks. It says this, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. It's exactly what's happening <laughs> with the issue of abortion. It is now being framed as something virtuous. It is now being framed as something that is fighting for women's rights. The sin of the death of these children is being framed as virtuous. Satan paints sins with virtue's colors. The ever-changing morality of the world beckons us to play, pay close attention to the conversation. Because, again, the question regarding abortion has shifted from whether or not the child's life begins at conception. That has been acknowledged and dismissed by the world as unimportant. There was a book that was released last year called The Secular Creed. I have it right here. I don't know if you guys can see this right here. Boom. <laughs> the Secular Creed, um, which goes through the creedal statement that shapes the morality of the world. And this book goes through and dismantles each argument with scripture, history, data, and informs Christians how to gently yet boldly engage these issues and show truth to those who are not Christians or who have been swayed by the statements of the Secular Creed. It was written by uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. And it's a, it's a very helpful book. Where appropriate, she does acknowledge common grace in some parts of the creed, but shows how their ideologies and motivations for their statements ultimately fail. Uh, so the, the, the secular creed is this, black lives matter, love is love, gay rights are civil rights, women's rights are human rights, transgender women are women. And, uh, and she just goes through and talks to those things. For example, so for the Black Lives Matter chapter, she says, black lives matter, absolutely. 
Christians can get behind that statement because God has made all of us in the image of God. And so if you are a human, you are worthy of dignity and respect and honor. But, but then she goes on and she says, she gets at the core of not the statement, but of the organization itself and their hostility towards the church and how it makes no sense when the civil rights movement was started from the church. And she does a wonderful job of dismantling these things and teaching us how to engage these issues. But she goes through every single one. It's, it's a wonderful book, but I'm going to keep going because i got to keep preaching. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a helpful book. I encourage you guys to check it out. Church, we must keep a strong theology of who God is. We cannot waver or weaken in our understanding of God, of his sovereignty, of his ownership of all things. We must keep this issue in the realm of theology. It is the strongest way. If we allow political pundits to own this issue in totality, not not be involved, but if they own this issue, then we lose persuasion and influence. But with the help of the Holy Spirit and crystal clear theological thinking regarding who God is and what he's called us to, we can obey his call to do justice in this area. Again, the act of abortion is a violation of God's commands. It is an assault on those who are vulnerable and bear the image of God. Scripture shows us that the beautiful blueprint of God's image begins in the womb. At conception, there is a soul. There is a person. There is an image bearer. We must allow the Bible to ultimately inform how we think on these things, church. Some questions to ask that can help us continue on is, what is our witness in this area? Are we a place of refuge? Are we making a difference here? Are we praying? Are we carrying ourselves in a way that will shine the bright light of our redemptive gospel on the darkness and evil of the abortion industry? And I have to stop here because our pro-life ministry is so consistent and so helpful. I get so many emails about what people are doing praying regularly, not just before years of life. They're out there praying the entire year, having conversations and doing things. God is smiling on your efforts. Thank you for those who carry this on their heart day in and day out. Sorry. So are we carrying ourselves in a way that those who have committed an abortion or have been a party to an abortion, are certain that there is forgiveness in the cross of Christ. That no guilt or shame can ever hang over their heads because Christ took on every single sin. And his love for you cannot waver or lessen that he calls you to come to him as weary and as tired as you are. This is what we want, church. We want people to be coming to us so we can show them the hope of Jesus and the redemption that is there. So, church, how do we respond to our Lord, our Redeemer, who formed us in the womb? It takes us to heading number three, which I've been saying all along. We trust in his good purposes and we act. Honoring God must be placed above fearing the opinion of man. This issue is not received well by the world. Our position is hated. It elicits volatile emotion and brings in a myriad of statistics and well what aboutisms. And we must love our neighbor enough to confidently, carefully, 
and with clarity speak up and advocate for true justice for the unborn. This shows up in our prayer life. Our prayers reflect a dependency on God and truly reveal what we actually believe God can do. Do we believe God can end the evil of abortion? Do we believe that God can foster a culture within the church where frightened, vulnerable, pregnant mothers are coming into our offices so that they can find refuge and help? Are we praying for the decisions coming up in our country? Do we stay out of comment sections and not be swayed, scared, or infuriated by clickbait articles? We have the theology that motivates us and spurs us into action. Church, there is joy in living a life of godly wisdom and, and submission to what God calls us to. And spreading the truth and justice of our God on this earth. Some things you can do is get involved in the ministry here at church, the pro-life ministry, the pro-life team. Participate in the 40 days for life. Go with them and pray at Planned Parenthood. Start conversations with people coming in, seeking abortions, showing them the love of Christ. Donating and volunteering at the women's centers, being informed about local government and laws that are on the line. We have the opportunity to rescue children and to save lives and to draw unbelievers into repentance and redemption. Church, it is all worth it. If we have a big view of God, we will have a big heart for justice to those who bear his image. Why do we do this? We do this to fulfill in part the mission of the church. We are to execute justice. We are to be a light and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can love our neighbors by caring for them, the scared mothers, the unborn children, by understanding the fears these mothers are facing and speaking life into them and provide resources for them, eliminating and calming their fears. We love our neighbor by speaking truth to them, dismantling their falsified view of of justice and the lies of their perceived autonomy. We love our neighbors by being a place of solace and restoration when they are overwhelmed by guilt and shame and the pain of losing their child and pointing them to the cross of Christ where all their sins are paid for, where there is true acceptance. True forgiveness and true redemption. We love our neighbors by showing them the beauty of submission to the sovereign God who formed them in the womb and is their redeemer. And love for our neighbors. Image bearers are who are confused, scared, and deceived. We love them by entering into each conversation or disagreement with the goal and the thought. May God use this conversation to woo this person into the love of Christ so that they too can identify with and rejoice that this Lord is their Redeemer. Band, you can start to come up now. We must remember that abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Christ's mercy reaches into the depths of darkness, and any sin, any action is redeemable because Christ is that good of a Savior. This text shows us that the Lord is our Redeemer, that he is Lord over all, and he is your Redeemer. The one who formed you is your Redeemer. It's who our God is. It's what our God does. And church, may we never forget that we ourselves needed to be redeemed and that God is making all things new.
Who but God is merciful enough to forgive and remove all of our guilt and all of our shame and permanently place us under the banner of those who have no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. As a church, here's where we need to be. We need to have passion for justice for the unborn. I think you guys have that already. We must be hopeful that prayer works and is powerful. We must have courage to speak on this and stand for truth and protecting those who bear God's image. And as we do all these things, we rest in the comfort that is permanently ours because we trust in the God who is justice. Because as broken as the world is, as confused and lost as people are, there is a king who sits on the throne, who is worthy of all glory and honor, and our lives were made to worship him and to glorify him, and he is making all things new. (laughs) And so we continue to press on for justice with surety and with hope because our just king, our Lord, our Redeemer, who formed us in the womb, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, is the Lamb who is worthy of all of our worship because he purchased redemption for us and has brought us in to the family of God. Amen.